I absolutely loved it. Uh, it brought a lot of color to all of those memories I have of reading the book when I was about seven and first becoming enchanted with hobbits and dwarves and elves and dragons named Smog. Um, I immediately went out and grabbed a copy of The Hobbit as a Christmas present for Reagan. And she and I have torn through it and now a good portion of the Fellowship of the Ring in the past few months. And uh, it's fun because she's learning to love that too. And one of the parts in the story of The Hobbit that I love so much is how the character of Bilbo Baggins is awakened throughout the book. See, Bilbo's not looking for an adventure. And in fact, he's kind of trying to avoid it because that is what respectable hobbits do. Uh, the pinnacle of hobbit existence is comfort and relaxation. And adventure intrudes horribly on that. As Bilbo says, we're plain quiet folk. We have no use for adventures. They're nasty, disturbing, and uncomfortable things. And they make you late for dinner. But Bilbo isn't just any hobbit. See, he's got that respectable blood of the Baggins in him. But he also has the lineage of the Tooks, a family of hobbits that are both kind of respected and rather misunderstood by the hobbit community because they have this habit of dropping everything, all that comfort and relaxation, and leaving the Shire to go adventuring with the likes of elves and dwarves and even the occasional human, if you can believe that. And so on a sunny afternoon, quite suddenly, the wizard Gandalf shows up. He places a cryptic mark on the door to Bilbo's hobbit hole. And the next thing you know, guests are showing up in the form of gruff, proud dwarves, one by one for an unexpected dinner party. And Bilbo kind of struggles to make sense of all this as he's trying to extend hospitality to each of these unexpected guests. But it becomes clear as the night rolls on that there is much more going on here than entertainment. See, the dwarves are looking for a companion to join them on an epic adventure, and they have selected to enlist the services of one Bilbo Baggins expert burglar, who, by the way, at this point has not burgled a single thing in his entire life. Okay? And initially, Bilbo refuses them, even, even somewhat, you know, pushes them out the hole, right? You know, it's like, no, leave me alone. But there is something raging inside of Bilbo, okay? A raging against that Baggins sensibility inside of him. And as he watches this adventuring party leave his doorstep and begin winding out of the Shire, Tolkien narrates, then something Tukish woke up inside of him. And he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls and explore caves and wear a sword instead of a walking stick. And without knowing exactly all of the whys or who he will even become as a result of all of this, Bilbo finds himself running with reckless abandon through the Shire to catch up to these sojourning dwarves and their wizened wizard companion for what will shape up to be an amazing adventure, an unexpected journey. I think we're kind of in that position where Bilbo is right now, church. See, quite unexpectedly at the beginning of this year, we were introduced to this idea that in Christian spiritual formation, there might be just a little bit more happening than we had previously encountered in our existence. One by one, these disciplines of meditation and prayer and fasting and study, simplicity, solitude, submission, service, confession, guidance, worship, and celebration showed up at our doorstep and began to turn our world upside down a little bit with their vision and passion for what might be out there for us. And here we are at the end of our study on the 12 classical spiritual disciplines. 
And we might be content to have simply entertained them. Listened to their story, understood their value, seen the freedom that they have to offer. But I need us to realize something. The disciplines are trying to wake something up in us. They're not content for us to merely entertain them. They want us to journey with them in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. It's far away from where respectable folk might go. And for certain times, the whole experience may feel like a nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable thing. But what about that Turkish side of you, church? What about that seed inside of you that begins to grow at the thought of something bigger, a life that is less ordinary, but more realized, more real? Are you willing to follow those disciplines in the path of Christ to run the race that is marked out for you? That's the challenge I kind of want to leave with you as we wrap this up. In our reading this morning, we see some amazing imagery that the writer of Hebrews brings to the followers of Jesus Christ about what it means to disciple ourselves to him. At the heart of this passage is the picture of an upward journey. Like a long-distance race that's also an ascent up the mountain of God. The arena is packed with those who have run before us. They stare on intently on the edge of their seats, ready to cheer and to urge us onward. And the witnesses to our journey on the path of Jesus Christ. But these witnesses aren't just the saints that have gone before us. They are also the disciplines themselves who bear witness to the power and the faith of God to help us complete the journey that's marked out for us. Surrounded by this packed stadium, we are invited to stretch out, lace up, and push out of the blocks for the finish line. To pursue the path of Jesus is not supposed to be a foreboding journey, says the writer. Oftentimes I think we think it is. I want you to listen to this. It is characterized by effort. It is characterized by great effort. But it is also characterized by joy. Later in chapter 12 and verse 18, the writer says this about our encounter with God and the course that we're called to run. Unlike your ancestors, you didn't come to Mount Sinai. All of this volcanic blaze and earth-shaking rumble to hear God speak. The ear-splitting words and the soul-shaking message terrified them. They begged him to stop. When they heard the words, if an animal touches the mountain, it's as good as dead, they were afraid to even move. Even Moses was terrified to his core. No, 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 that's not your experience at all, says the writer of Hebrews. You've come to Mount Zion, the city where the living God resides, the invisible Jerusalem that's populated by throngs of festive angels and Christian citizens. It is the city where God is judge, and the judgments that he makes make us righteous and just you've come to jesus who presents us with a new covenant a fresh charter from god he is the mediator of this covenant the murder of jesus unlike abel's a homicide that cried out for vengeance this became a proclamation of grace that calls us onward church we've got to believe that as disciples in the way of jesus that this is a mountain that we can climb This is a race that we can run. Instead of the fear that rooted Israel in place at the foot of Mount Sinai, we have a vision that says, come on up, climb on, move forward. With those that have come before us urging us on and the disciplines as fellow journeymen and running companions. But to take this journey, says the writer, we have to be continually engaging in three critical things. 
We must be about casting off the things that slow us down. We must be about fixing our gaze on Christ. And most importantly, we must be about the process of enduring, of continuing through difficulty and being consistent. These are what the disciplines of the Spirit exist for, to free us to run out the race that Christ has marked out for us. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I'm no marathon runner, but I do think that if I ever did run one, I would not do it wearing a weighted diving suit or stormtrooper armor or bumping along someone inside someone in a burlap camel costume. Okay? okay all right, okay, maybe the stormtrooper armor. Okay, maybe. But can you imagine the sweat inside that thing after 26.2 miles? That is not very breathable looking to me. Okay? All right. Seriously. But if I'm running to compete, if I'm running to finish strong, if I'm running to finish at my best, the last thing that I want is excess weight holding me back, restricting my movement, dragging me down. And see, in our journey in the footsteps of Christ, says the writer, we have to make the same considerations. What is cumbersome or heavy or awkward that needs to be stripped away so that I can travel light? I love this because it's looking at sin in a very pragmatic way. It's not just that these behaviors and beliefs are unhealthy for my relationship with God, and they are, okay? But it's also understanding that these things are unwieldy. They're purposeless in the mindset of somebody that's journeying into the kingdom of God. As the writer says, it is time for us to strip down and start running No spiritual fat, no parasitic sins, nothing holding us back. When I look at the internal disciplines that we talked about in the first four weeks, they are all about freeing us from the attitudes and the behaviors that weigh us down and keep us from getting up and effectively pursuing God's path for us. As we engage in the discipline of slowing down and meditating, resting in order to run, absolutely. As we do that, we cultivate the spiritual sensitivity that God, that God needs us to have in him in order for him to work. That sensitivity leads us into a discipline of prayer where we gain greater clarity of how to listen to God, how to suspend and cast off our presuppositions about life. Fasting begins to accompany prayer. We engage in the critical training practice of learning to deny one need in order to pursue a better and greater need. And to focus and embrace what is greater in our lives. And informed by these disciplines, then we're able to move into study and receive the discernment we need about ourselves and the world that we live in. All of this is undergirding. It's a continual removal process where we leave unhealthy and weighty attitudes and beliefs and practices behind, and we hold fast to what is necessary and what is helpful. And we keep doing this continually in our lives. We do it again and again and again. We keep it as a routine. Why? So that the things that we encounter on the road don't cause us to pick up something that's best left alone or begin to settle in and stop earnestly seeking and moving forward. They're the foundational disciplines that keep us prepared on our journey. Have you ever tried walking across a great open space like a parking lot or a big grassy field? and then just looked at the area immediately in front of your feet? Have you ever tried to do that? Not only can it make you incredibly dizzy, but when you look back, 
you are rarely walking in the straight line that you thought you were. Instead, when our vision is limited and shortened to just the immediate place right in front of our toes, we will start wandering aimlessly rather than keeping course, right? And then there's that whole falling off a cliff thing that you didn't see while you were climbing because you were busy looking at your toes thing, okay? There's also that too, right? Lack of vision, lack of focus, it doesn't only contribute to aimless steps, it's often downright hazardous for the traveler, if you're going to run, you've got to keep your eyes up. You've got to keep your eyes out so that you know what's coming on the road. And see, the writer of Hebrews encourages you and I to do the same thing. Keep our eyes on Jesus at all costs, the one who both began and finished the race that we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed. In a world that so easily distracts you and I, so actively works to turn not just our head, but our steps into aimless and hazardous paths all around us. We need things that lift up and focus our vision. And the four outward disciplines do that for us. Simplicity narrows the focus for us. And it gives us lives of integrity in which we are able to filter everything through the simple lens of seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And let the rest come out of that. And solitude is the critical way that we start turning down the noise of the world around us so that we can really learn to be present in our world as God would have us be present rather than being distracted by all of those other things that are vying for our attention. You know, those hundred little, you know, those thousand little, you know, lowercase g gods that are, you know, clamoring for our attention instead of the one true God, Right? Submission cultivates that willing heart in us so that we can live without the need for manipulation or needing to strike out our own path. Service puts us into willing action. It puts into practice these attitudes and methods of Christ in our relationships and situations that we find ourselves in every day. All of these disciplines, they become interconnected and they grow out of each other, each of them providing a distinctive part of the freedom that we have to narrow our focus on the imitation of Christ. That's a freedom. Don't forget that. There are many things that look good that want to enslave you and take away your freedom. The disciplines actually provide the freedom to pursue the path that brings life. That's why we've been talking about this all the way through, that the disciplines bring freedom for us. Freedom to choose the Holy Spirit. Freedom to let him transform our soul. Freedom to be able to actually be like Jesus. It is difficult, it requires effort, it requires discipline, but it brings great freedom. All right? I have a friend in college who lives in Houston, Texas, who recently chronicled his journey from being a minister in average shape at sea level to making the 22-mile climb to the 14,500-foot summit of Mount Whitney in, in California. Um, it is in the continental, it is, in the continental U.S., it is the highest climb. Okay, you know, there's, there's Alaska, but, you know, we don't count that, right? Um, but I'm impressed. I'm impressed when I hear him kind of chronicling all the stuff that he had to do in order to get in shape for this thing. Um, and in his blog, he talked about two very, very essential components of being able to both prepare and execute for that kind of summit climb. And the most important thing he said was consistency. 
consistency. Endurance, especially endurance of the spirit, only comes through the consistency of life. We can't expect to just be holy all of a sudden when it's required. We were talking about this in class this morning. Like, I can't wake up this morning and be like, okay, Travis, you're going to be holy. It just doesn't work that way. You know, I cannot alter the condition of my soul to be holy when it's needed. Instead, I have to engage in the consistent lifestyle of Christ that then allows him to transform my soul. And we can't expect that this rhythm of consistent living that produces all these necessary responses to happen on our own. As the writer encourages us on the journey, when you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, this long litany of hostility that Christ plowed through, and that will shoot adrenaline with your, through your souls. But what is it that keeps that consistency consistent? I can't do that by myself. I need community. We need community. It gets back to in light of this great cloud of witnesses that's all around you, right? What is it that allows you to run this race effectively as disciples? It's because you're not running by yourself. It's because you're running with. You're journeying alongside. When I surround myself with people that are moving in the same direction as I am, with the same goals and the same aims, it becomes a self-regulating and sustaining thing. I know many of our members of our church trained for that 10K run last week, and they know this principle very, very, very well. You know? I know. I mean, like, I, I, I watched Jocelyn, I watched Angela run together, right? And, and get together and, and count on each other to go out and keep running and keep doing it together so that they could actually do it when the time came, right? And they worked up to it not by themselves, but as a group. I may not want to go out there and run. But if I have other runners that are out there waiting for me, I am much more likely to get out and go do it anyway, right? The communal disciplines free us to have the consistency required for that spiritual endurance necessary to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Confession frees us to live honestly and openly with each other without any pretense so that we know that we're moving in the same direction. That freedom releases us to worship wholeheartedly. And as we fill and fill up our primary purposes in life to minister to God's heart and to give him our devotion, it clarifies and strengthens the rest of our existence. The guidance of the Spirit helps us to navigate the difficulties and the unknowns of our lives by the communal Spirit working among us. And then when we're immersed in a community that is practicing these things together, not just on our own, we are free to engage in the discipline of celebration together to raise our eyes above the current trials to the cloud of witnesses around us and ahead of us and to push forward in an endurance that's joyous, not just plodding along, trying to get through it. The Christian life is supposed to be better than that, Jesus says, right? And it is when we engage in community that we find the joy of the Christian life, when we find the joy of the walk, the joy of the race. And we go step after step with confidence in our guide, Jesus, who has blazed the trail before us and has conquered the summit. I remember when I first picked up Richard Foster's book on spiritual disciplines, and the seeming irony of the title really, really struck me. Celebration of Discipline. 
there's something wrong with this guy, I thought. Okay? Discipline has never really been something that I wanted to tolerate, let alone take joy in. And as it turns out, I was very, very wrong. I'm glad to say that the title is very, very spot on. Okay, why? Because throughout this series on the disciplines, we have come back to this idea that each of these disciplines is rooted in the freedom of the Holy Spirit and that when I allow holy discipline to yoke me into Christ, I actually find the peace and rest for my soul and experience greater freedom in my life. If there's one thing that I've come to learn, it is that Christ never intended following him to be drudgery. He intended it to be an adventure in every sense of the word. An exciting and unusual experience that shocks the respectable folk as we head out into parts unknown, risking things that we did not know were worth risking for an outcome that while unseen and at times feels very uncertain and is out of my control, creates the arousal and the meaning and the purpose that we are truly looking for in life because we know the one in whom we have believed. Bilbo was right, you know. Adventures in the steps of Jesus are often nasty, disturbing, and uncomfortable things at times. And often you find yourself sacrificing much more than just being on time for dinner. And yet I'm sure with the cloud of witnesses around us and the path before us, there is something compelling that is being stirred up in us to go the pioneer before us, Jesus, he lived and he died and he rose by this way of disciplined living. And now he beckons us with these words. If you're looking to hang on to your life, you will surely find that you've lost it all. But if you're willing to cast aside what life is for my sake... Ah, that's when you're going to find yourselves truly immersed in a life that's worth living. I love those words because they challenge me to my core. To the very core of who I am. To cast off what I think life is and to step outside my door into the realm of what God thinks life is. His capital R reality. Are we willing to step out the door? Are we willing to let him do that? That's really the question. When Bilbo's wrestling with this idea of going out with the dwarves, Gandalf doesn't dismiss the fact that adventure is costly. It's a dangerous business walking out one's front door, he says. But then he gives him this simple reminder. Mr. Baggins, the world is not in your books and your maps. It's out there. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way at the end of his letter. So let's go out there. Outside, where Jesus is. Where the action is. Not trying to stay privileged insiders, but taking on our share of the abuse of Jesus. This insider world isn't our home anyway. We have our eyes peeled on the city that is to come. And so let's take our place out there with Jesus, pouring out the sacrifice of lips and lives that are lived in his name. Church, may we be both blessed and compelled to step out there where Jesus is.
into the journey of discipleship with the disciplines of the Spirit as our companion and with the Holy Spirit as our guide ever before us, ever calling us on to new heights on our steps up the mountain of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, stir up in our hearts Stir up in our hearts the desire to follow in your steps. These things that you put in front of us sometimes seem very, very scary. This idea of, of, of casting our life aside or casting what, what we think would be important aside. There's a lot to risk, God. There's a lot to risk. And yet we have this, this, we have this belief that you are trustworthy. We have this knowledge that you're worth it. And so Lord, help us not to be content as, as people that are they're coming to know you, or people that, that, that do know you, or even people that have committed their lives to you. Help us to avoid this idea that now we are merely to sit and wait. Because, Lord, you are out there. You are out there in the world. You are out in the journey. And you go with us. And so, Lord, we pray that with the Holy Spirit as our guide, that we will have the courage to step out and live. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your son who was the pioneer, who, who showed us what it's like to really, really live a life worth living. And we give him all glory and honor and praise. It's in his name we lift this prayer.